Good morning, everyone. My name is Melanie Vleetstra Kilgore. It is a pleasure to be with you all this morning. I thought I'd tell you a little bit about myself since I haven't met most of you, and it would be good to know who's standing before you this morning. Uh, so a little bit about me. I am the worship director and children's ministry director at First Reformed Church in Byron Center, which is also where I live. And I am also a student at Western Theological Seminary. I'm in their distance learning program. So if you don't know what that means, instead of me going to a classroom on a regular basis, my classroom is my couch in my living room, which I visit early in the morning and late at night with my computer and uh, work around my work schedule to do that. But it's a blessing and a joy to be a part of the Western community and also to be here with you this morning. I brought my husband, Steve, this morning too, and we met at our church about six years ago. And if you saw me seven months ago, I did not look like this. This is not holiday weight gain. In case you were wondering, um, also my church tends to ask me a lot if there's twins in here. I am sorry to disappoint you. There's only one baby girl in here. Um, and we are excited to meet her at the end of next month. So we've got a little bit of a wait here before she arrives. Um, as I said, I'm a children's ministry director. And so in light of thinking about children, there's a number of stories that we often think are more tailored towards children when we read the Bible. So this happens in our churches and in our homes. I think about when I first met my husband, and we would go to lunch after our church services with his family. All of his nieces and nephews would come, and at the end of the meal, we would gather and have a storytelling time from the children's Bible, and one of the children there would get to choose the story. We had a lot of repeat stories because... My niece, for example, loved the story of baby Moses because it's about a baby and everything baby is great in her book. And then I had a nephew who loved the story of David and Goliath because what young boy doesn't like the story of an underdog who's young and can take out a giant with a slingshot? And then there's other stories that we reference as children's stories. I think of Noah's Ark. By the way, if you've read that recently, it's not a children's story. Samson with all of his strength, and then Jonah. So each of these stories has an element to it that connects with children. But sometimes that element can almost be distracting from what God might be trying to reveal to us. For example, if I said Jonah, what's the first thing we think of? Yeah, a whale, a fish. Hebrew says great fish. And then we get so focused on this whale or fish that shows up for a very small amount of time in the book that we don't really get the rest of the message. So today, I want to look at the second half of the book of Jonah after the part with the fish so that we can see what God might be telling us here. And in order to do that, we should probably jump back to the beginning so that we're all on the same page. So if you were looking at verse 1 of Jonah 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord. So we're going to do a kind of a hopping around in this part of the Bible, um, especially in the book of Jonah. Then begins this crazy story. 
with Jonah as he goes on this wild adventure. Instead of going to Nineveh, he goes the opposite direction to Tarshish. He hops on a ship. A storm starts brewing. Everyone on board is going, why is this happening? And they realize it's because Jonah is trying to run from God, which doesn't work. So in the end, Jonah agrees to be thrown overboard. And as soon as he hits the water, the storm ceases. Then we get to that beloved part with the fish. All right, side note, my husband loves to fish. If you knew me well, you'd know I don't like anything that's messy or smelly. Fishing. (laughs) So I like to be with my husband, so I go fishing with him on occasion. But he is so kind and patient and puts all my worms on for me and takes all my fish off. Actually, he puts a lot more worms on than takes fish off because I'm a lot better at losing my worm than catching a fish. All to say, the sensory experience of being in a fish, I don't want to go there. So I'll let you use your imaginations this morning. And we're going to jump to chapter 3 now. And it makes me think of January. Because January, often talk about fresh starts, resolutions, second chances. And here, Jonah gets a fresh start. Because verse 1 of chapter 1 that we just read and verse 1 of chapter 3 are very, very similar. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Okay, stopping there. Unlike chapter 1, this time Jonah obeys. However, rather reluctantly, as we shall see. Jonah goes to Nineveh, and it takes him three days to go through the whole city and preach one line. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. But verse 5 says, The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And even the king got off of his throne to repent and call everyone in the city to repent. And then jumping to verse 10, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring destruction on them. Now, this is huge. In order to know the drasticness of this moment, we have to understand Nineveh at that time, which was known to be very evil. It's present-day Iraq, but at the time, it was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, which was Israel's greatest enemy. This was not just any city. It was the largest and its power base. So... In 722, the Assyrians completely destroyed the northern kingdom, Israel, and scattered all those people. So the people of Israel and all of its neighbors didn't love Assyria. They wanted to see them destroyed. That was their hope and their prayer. So Nineveh is not just any city. Even in the book of Nahum and some other passages in the Old Testament, we see these references to prophecies about the destruction of Assyria. Specifically in Nahum, it gives a lot of focus to that. In chapter 3 of Nahum, this is what it says. I'm against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face and and show your kingdom your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? This would have been like an anthem for Israel. And Jonah, 
being a prophet like Nahum would have probably given a hearty amen to these destruction words. And so that's why he didn't go to Nineveh and went the opposite direction. So Nineveh isn't just any city. We could compare it to one of our greatest enemies. You can name whatever that would be for you. Maybe that would be ISIS or Russia or Iran or North Korea, terrorists, a dictator around the world. That's a picture of Nineveh. But we could also look at another picture. Maybe we could look at Nineveh in light of a person in our life who's the last person we could ever imagine turning to God. Maybe they just have a, a stubborn mind on them. We don't think we could ever get through to them. We could bet money they wouldn't walk through the doors of a church. Or Nineveh could also relate to that coworker who's always trying to compete with you. They never let you get credit for anything. They always want to steal that next promotion. And you don't want to show compassion to them. You just want as much space as you possibly can get, and you're secretly hoping that they get fired or change jobs someday. Nineveh can represent many things, including the bully on the school playground. It could also be uh, a politician that every time we think about them, they just make us cringe. So many different representations of what Nineveh can be to us. The story of Jonah reminds us of the inclusive nature of God, of a God who shows compassion to our greatest enemies and to those we least expect and don't think deserve grace. It's also about a group of people who are very misunderstood and are excluded from society. We might not necessarily see these people as our enemy, maybe, but simply as different from us. And they are so different that we can't imagine how we are similar, whether it be because of their language, culture, color of their skin, uh, where they're from, IQ, and cultural background. We have people in our world that are so different from us that sometimes we can't understand God's love for them or how they deserve blessings like we think we deserve. Perhaps that could be refugees, immigrants, people of a different culture, ethnicity, language. The list goes on and on. And there's many examples. I, I think of families that have children that might not act like children that come to church on a regular basis. They're disruptive. They don't always have the best behavior, and we're afraid that our children will start to follow in their ways. And so we try to make ourselves separate from them. Or it could be that grocery store, the one we try to avoid because the people there, maybe they smell different, they look different, they have different odd behaviors to us. But I know a pastor who once told me that he chooses to shop at the grocery store that everyone else avoids because he recognizes that if he thinks he's better than everyone else in that store, then he's thinking too highly of himself. So instead, he goes there on a regular basis, and he's created these beautiful relationships with people that are very different from him, but he's been blessed through these relationships. The story of Jonah reminds us that God's love encompasses all of humanity, from the evilest to the most unexpected, and including those who are very different from us. 
So when we look at the Old Testament, we often see these passages that focus on God's people, the Israelites, and how God will go to great lengths to protect and take care of them, even to the extent of killing their enemies. But then we look at Jonah 3 and 4, and that doesn't seem to be coming through in this message. Some scholars now say that the book of Jonah was probably written at a much later date than we first thought, making it one of the last books of the Old Testament. So it's more like a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so with that in mind, it reminds us that while God had a plan for the Israelites in the Old Testament, his plan also included other people. The New Testament takes this further, showing us the example of Jesus Christ, who regularly meets with outsiders, like the Samaritan woman, Zacchaeus. He even had two disciples who were on opposite ends of the spectrum when it came to politics. Yet they managed to travel together, live together, eat together, even though in normal society that would never happen. That's what Jesus can do. The New Testament writings go even further to say that there's no difference between a Jew and a Gentile, those who are God's people in the Old Testament and those who are new to the faith, those who are very different. The Jews and the Gentiles had major differences that they had to overcome in that day because that was the hot topic. But the excuses that people made back then for not allowing Gentiles in the church are often similar to the excuses we make today for not including people. The message of Jonah is, God's love is not restricted to a certain group of people. We probably nod and say, that sounds about right. I've heard that before. However, sometimes there's this divide between our head and our hearts. Now, in those passages about Jews and Gentiles being the same in the New Testament, I remember reading about those in high school and being confused because I'm a Gentile. I'm not of Jewish heritage. So as a teenager reading this book and it's saying, I am welcome into the faith, I thought, of course I am. That makes perfect sense. But at that day, that wasn't as clear. And even now we look back and we still have divisions in our faith that keep us from welcoming people in keep us from seeing people as more outsiders than insiders. Jonah was an Israelite. He thought he had reason to make people outsiders because they weren't like him. But Jonah's story shows us that even before Jesus Christ walked this earth, the God of Jonah is saying, make room. Maybe it would be good if we remembered the times we didn't fit in so well at church. Maybe because everyone knew everyone and we didn't. Maybe because we stood out. Maybe we had different color skin, spoke a different language. It was our gender. Or maybe it could be because there was a certain flow or unknown style to the service that you were just unfamiliar with. We get so accustomed to knowing and being, feeling like insiders that we don't quite understand what it feels like to be outsiders sometimes. And maybe if we recognize those times in life where we felt like outsiders, we could understand how to make more room for outsiders to feel like insiders. When we choose to include others, 
life gets messier. And honestly, we like to lessen the mess, the chaos, and the challenges, especially when it comes to church. So we put signs in front of our building that say, all are welcome, but it's almost like we should have put an asterisk at the end or a parenthesis. So it says, all are welcome, as long as your children aren't disruptive during our service. As long as you have a high enough IQ level. If you wear appropriate clothing, if you speak our language, if you dress like we do, look like we do, have the knowledge about the Bible that we do so we don't have to simplify our language. All these little details that we add in at the end. We, if we limit God's love or the ministry of the church to a select group of people, we are teaching inaccurate theology. The Old Testament seems to give this underlying message that God's people are prized above all others. But then those Gentiles joined the Jews and we had Christians together, even though they felt divided. And even centuries later, we still carry divisions with us. This is Jonah's response to all of this. In chapter 4, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, Take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah's mad at God because God's showing compassion to a group of people who are outsiders. Now I give Jonah credit here because at least he's being honest and speaking his mind. Maybe if we were honest, we'd be upset about how God chooses to show compassion to people that we don't think deserve it. But Jonah's trying to contain God, to give God a set of rules to abide by and boundaries that he thinks are right and fair. And Jonah is trying to measure himself up against God. So it's like Jonah's saying, okay, God, you're here, and I'm here. But we all know that if we're using our hands to show our relation to God, we've gone too far. Jonah 4 shows Jonah more like a pouting child. I think we've all seen this picture before. Maybe at your homes, maybe here at church. I tend to see it a lot at the grocery store, specifically in the candy aisle or the cereal aisle. There's a child who's got their eyebrows lowered, lips pouting, hands here or here. And they're yelling, they're crying, they're kicking, they're screaming. Maybe they're curled up on a ball on the floor. Who knows why? Maybe because their parents said it's time to go home and they're not ready. Maybe because they want that candy bar. Or maybe they're just so tired, they don't even know what they're making a fuss about anymore. But all the while that this child is having this temper tantrum, a parent stands by, calmly, using soothing but direct words. They don't yell. They don't carry on. They simply can see that their child can't see what they can see. So they're giving them time and space and correction to make a good choice. Jonah 
is like that child, with God watching over him. And so God, in all compassion, decides to bring up this plant to come over Jonah and shelter him from the sun as he pulls himself together again, kind of like his own timeout. But God isn't content to leave Jonah there. And in his pitying moment, sulking. So God kills the tree, which of course makes Jonah complain more. But we hear that parental reminder from God that showed up in verse 4 and then shows up again in verse 9. And it says, is it right for you to be angry? This is basically where the book ends. Last verse says, the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant that you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? Okay, I got to that part of the book and I turned the page thinking there's more. There isn't. I have a feeling if I asked some of you before the service how the book of Jonah ends, you would have thought that Jonah did something right in the end. But we don't know really how it ends. There's not like a it is finished moment here. Instead, we are left to wonder what happened with Jonah. Did he stay underneath that tree that shriveled up next to him, sulking? Did he go out and celebrate with the Ninevites? Or did he walk back home defeated? Kind of like we walk when we're disappointed by how our faith is going and walk away from God. When we start off in the new year, sometimes we see this as our second chance. Because maybe last year wasn't the greatest, and we're hoping this year is going to be better. So we make some goals, some resolutions, we want to break some bad habits. Now every day we get another chance. And God is the giver of second, third, and 100th chances. But it's what we do with them. Because Jonah was given multiple chances. First time he ran away. And like three times he tried to choose death instead of God's call on his life. And then he finally managed to do what God told him to do, to say that one sentence. And look what happened. An entire city repented. If that's what God can do through us, if we give him a little bit of reluctant obedience, it makes me wonder what the Spirit can do through us when we are fully committed. Each of us, in one way or another, is like Jonah, sitting under that shriveled up tree, casting judgment on someone or something, or maybe throwing our own little temper tantrum, complaining. We can choose to sit there and sulk, or we can go out and celebrate what God is up to. Now, I want to rewrite the end of Jonah's story. I want him to go out and celebrate with the Ninevites, to go into their homes, to have a meal with them, then go back to his home and bring all of his friends and bring them back to Nineveh so he can say, look at what God is doing in this unexpected place. But we can't just rewrite the end of Jonah. But we can play a role in how our endings work. If this year is another chance at something, 
Maybe we can look beyond the things that culture focuses on when it comes to resolutions and goals. Maybe we've grown comfy under our trees. We might be looking in judgment on someone or something else. Or maybe we're complaining about what our life looks like right now. Perhaps we should be leaving those trees behind, taking that second, third, or 100th chance that God offers us. Maybe that looks like mending a broken relationship. Or maybe it looks like making room in your pew for someone who's very different from you. Or it could be engaging with that person who's either your coworker that you can't stand or that person that's the last one you can see turning to God. Or even praying for that political leader that makes you cringe. In the end, what I find most surprising about the story of Jonah is that neither Jonah nor the Ninevites, are the, they are the least likely candidate for salvation. So, if you ever feel like you are the least likely candidate for salvation, welcome. You are in good company. Because none of us are deserving of this gift of grace that we have through the work of Jesus Christ and how God welcomes us into his family. Jonah reminds us that when we mess up, God still gives us multiple chances to correct ourselves and to make a better choice. And the Ninevites remind us that when we feel like outsiders, God says, you have a place with me. You are not an outsider in my book. And that gives us reason to make anyone who feels like an outsider more like an insider. In the words of Maya Angelou, we are more alike, my friends, than we are unalike. Will you pray with me? Holy God, who is gracious and compassionate, more than we can even understand. Lord, would you open our eyes to see how you are working in our life and in the lives around us and in the world around us. Sometimes we can be so critical. We can be critical of how you show up and do things that are unexpected or not in line with how we think you should be doing things. We can be critical of how you are present in our life. Maybe we wish you felt closer. Maybe we wish you'd show up in bigger ways. Maybe we wish you would fix some of the challenges that we are facing. It's easy for us to look at other people and cast judgment. Maybe we look at other people and they make us feel worse about ourselves. We don't measure up compared to them. Maybe we look at others and they make us feel better about ourselves. Our lives look a lot prettier than theirs. But then we become critical of other people. We begin to use eyes that are not holy or compassionate or gracious. But Lord, we know that we need more space in our life for that grace and compassion that you show to people like the Ninevites whether that be people who are our greatest enemies, those that we think are the least deserving of your grace, or those who are just so different that we can't understand them. 
So Lord, would you help us to make room? Make room in our pew, make room in our church, make room in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our hearts for what you want us to see that you are up to. Because we know where your spirit is, is where we want to be. We want to be moving in the same direction that you are. We want to be a part of the work that you are up to. Because when we know that we're following our plans, it just doesn't go right. But to the God who is in control of all, who sees all, knows all, and has a plan, we want to be right on board with you. And for those of us here this morning, Lord, who understand what it feels like to be an outsider in one way or another, would your grace and compassion warm us with your embrace, reminding us that no matter where we go, you see us, you know us, you love us, and you accept us wholly as we are, even in our faults and our mistakes. And may we be quick to repent like the Ninevites, quick to run to you, quick to celebrate what you are up to, and quick, quick to praise you as the giver of all good things. We pray this all in your name. Amen.